0: of a Bible study given at the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title of the Pre-Roma, and is number seven, and the last of a second series which has been considering the teaching of the book of Exodus. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, so that those who are listening to this recording, if they care to join us, will you turn to Psalm 73 and we'll read it together. This Psalm 73 is the first of what is called the Leviticus section of the Book of Psalms. You may know that the Book of Psalms divides into five portions, and each section ends up with a double Amen, as you'll see Psalm 72. Amen and Amen. And this one corresponds with the Book of Leviticus. And you will discover that quite a number of the Psalms deal with the sanctuary. And this does. You might notice, just to help you with regard to this Psalm, that in verse 1 we have the word truly, and in verse 13 we have the word verily, and in verse 17 we have the, in verse 18 we have the word surely. Now obviously, on the surface they look the same. They are the same word. And there's every likelihood that the first verse was not written first, it's written last. Because you see what he's saying. He says, you know, I wasn't always like this. I was beginning to get very uh, disappointed. I began to wonder whether I'd taken the wrong turning, whether it was any good to serve God when I saw the way in which the wicked were prospering and I seemed to suffer. So, without suggesting that this should be an alternative translation, yet the thought put into modern English could be like this. Verse 1. After all, God is good to Israel. Eden to such as I've got a clean heart, you see. He said, I didn't quite think that. But after all, I've come to see it. Then look at verse 13. After all, I seem to have cleansed my heart in vain. And then I went into the sanctuary of God, verse 17, and I said, after all, thou didst set them in slippery places. Oh, he said, I don't envy them anymore. I've come out of that sanctuary, and I say, oh, what a fool I've been. Anyone in that same category, friend, in this room? I oh, wouldn't be at all surprised if a whole lot of us are saying to ourselves, yes, yes, Asaph, you're only saying in language that I might not be able to emulate some of the things that are fitted through my mind sometimes. Well, we're going to consider still the bearing of the sanctuary because we've been dealing with the book of Exodus and a good deal of our thoughts have been occupied with the tabernacle which God says, make me a sanctuary. And that sanctuary is not merely a place of spectacular ceremonialism, but it was a place where God would meet with his people, dwell with his people, instruct his people, and in association with it, lead his people. So our thoughts are going to be mainly associated with the last chapter of the book of Exodus, to which we might just turn. It says in verse 17 of chapter 40, verse 17, and it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month. So there's a strong insistence upon a, a something which is now a, a beginning, that the tabernacle was reared up. And then it goes through all the details of the tabernacle, and it says at the end of verse 32, Verse 32, so Moses finished the work, then a cloud. That's the thought for us this evening. A finished work, and then the cloud. Now, you may say to some people, then the cloud, they say, we've got enough clouds without this. You don't call a cloud a blessing. Well, it depends, friends. If you were like the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, with a promised land a long way in front of you, and trackless miles of desert between what a blessing it would be to have a cloud that could be seen by day and a pillar of fire by night. So our subject is largely this, that as a definite outcome of redemption, God leads his people. Put it this way, you know Psalm 23, don't you? And it says this, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, anybody who can say that can go on and say he leadeth me. There's not a question of, oh, he may lead me, or perhaps he will. No, God has pledged himself in the type and shadow here, or in the psalm there and in many other places, that leading after you're saved is just as sure as the forgiveness of sins or the hope of glory. But you may say to me, are you one of those peculiar people that always know the will of God. You're always sure you're being led in the right way. I say, I know this, friends. I, when, I, when I sit down and think it quietly, I know I'm being led by God. But whether I'm following him, that's another story, friends. That's the story where we're up against. There's not the possibility of doubting that God will keep his word and lead us. But you see, we're not fixed onto him with a sort of a hook, and we have no thought about it. He's asking us. He says to us, "Follow me." But suppose we hang back. Well, we get a bit scared, and we get a bit lost. He won't let us be lost forever. But it may may do us good to get a bit scared sometimes, so that we realize, just as I was realizing many other things, there are two sides to a question. Don't you see? It's utterly impossible for God to lead anybody if they won't follow. It's not possible to teach anybody if they won't learn. It's not possible to feed anybody if they won't open their mouth or if they resist it. So you see, largely with us, a question of our following. I've told you before, I'm sure, in this meeting, but it it illustrates my case. There was a lady I knew some many years ago who was rather highly strung, a little bit... uh, liable to be uh, extreme in some of her views. And she said, oh, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me that the Lord may lead me. Well, I knew what was going to happen, so I very bluntly said, I'll do no such thing. Oh my, what a shocking letdown that was. But I said, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll pray that you may be willing to follow. I said, that's your trouble. Oh, I can sense it. I said, it's not that you don't believe the Lord's leading you. But I have a suspicion he's leading you one way and you want to go to the other. And that could be illustrated by another old story. An old granny used to live in a little village in the country, went out every day selling haberdashery round the villages about. And when she got to the end of the road, she used to throw a stick up in the air and whichever way her stick pointed, off she toddled that day to sell her wares. And they said, Granny, we saw you up at the end of the road this morning and you threw your stick up in the air three times. What was that for? Well, she said it would point that way and I want you to go that way this morning. Have you never done it, friends? Well, don't bother about Asaph because he knows know all about that too. So here we are. Now, what about this question of reading for a little while before we go into the chapter 40? Will you look at chapter 13, Exodus 13, Verse 21. You see, they've been redeemed by the Passover land. They're on their way. They're still in Egypt, but the Red Sea is awaiting them. And it says here, in verse 20, And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Echam in the edge of the wilderness. The edge of the wilderness. They're now ready and needing bleeding. And the Lord went before them by day, in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. Now notice this next bit. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And then the very next chapter you begin to find places which are connected with trouble. And you know that these people were a rebellious people They had to be corrected. Some of them had to be so severely disciplined that their bodies fell in the wilderness. But however much they rebelled against the Lord, he never broke his word with them. That pillar of cloud continued day and night until they reached the river Jordan. Leading is a part of the price, uh, the consequence of the price that was paid for redemption. And do, do notice the... Lovely character of God's dealing. He didn't say, well, I've given you a pillar of cloud, that's good enough. No, he said, I'll change it when it gets dark and make it a, a something that's visible in the night. Oh, he, he accommodates his leading to the circumstances. That's another encouragement, isn't it? So that you can see it in the day and you can see it in the night. There's one other passage in Exodus, which has a bearing upon this, and that is Exodus 33, verses 14 and 15. Moses is getting a little bit concerned about this people, verse 12. He said to the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Verse 14. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not. My presence shall go with thee. Well, that was that. that was the uh, pillar of cloud, was a symbol of God's presence. Now, symbols may change. We live in a dispensation where we walk by faith and not by sight. There's no cloud to be seen in the daytime and no fire to be seen at nighttime. But we have the same Lord. And he has said, I will never leave thee, neither will I forsake thee. So we may boldly say, I will not I will not care what man shall do unto me that's what he said. So it's still with us, you see. It may not be always so spectacular as in the days of Israel, but the reality of it is surely unquestionable. Well then, just a few passages outside Exodus to bear upon this, because I have a feeling. That nobody in this meeting is sitting there saying, Oh, we don't want to know all about this question of being led. We all know all about it. That's one of the things we don't know. Except that one person that you meet sometimes, whenever you meet him, whatever's happening and whatever he's saying, he says, I felt led. I felt led. I felt led. Have you met him? Well, he's a danger. The person who's always feeling led could brush the teaching of scripture because he feels let. I like to spell it M E A D sometimes but and touch his head or something, but then of course he might not understand me. Now I notice in Psalm 107, which is looking back onto the history of this people, the psalmist says these words. Psalm 107 verse 7. Turning over these leaves sounds on this uh, recording as though we are banging corrugated sheets about, but we can't very help it, can we? Psalm 107, verse 7. He led them forth by a right way. Would you say, certainly, I can understand that. That's what we're all wanting. Oh yes, oh yes. But would you go back to Exodus again? Chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. But there's another aspect of this. 13, 17 and 18. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them, not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Verse 18. That God led the people about. Put those two together, friends. The Lord leads always in a right way but sometimes the right way will be a roundabout way. Isn't that so? And if you were honest, wouldn't you say to me that in more cases than one in your life it's been a roundabout way rather than a straight forward move? Well, let's have another illustration. You have got a little nephew or a niece, a toddler, and you've taken them up into the west end, and there you are at Trafalgar Square, and you want to get across to the other side. If you were alone, you might risk it and go straight. But you can't. And that little knight is wondering why on earth you seem to be going all round the world to get over there. But you know why, don't you? You go across and you stop. You go across and you stop. You go across and you stop. And then eventually you get round. Uncle or auntie, why are you leading me in such a roundabout way? Well, because there's a good deal of difficulty opposition, problems, in God's answer to them was, that's the way of the Philistines, and you are not yet ready to meet that people. So, he gently led them a long way round, which they didn't appreciate, because it was better for them. Isn't it good for us to know that some of our very grumbles are already anticipated in the book, and we get the answers even before we ask? Did you remember, you need not turn to this passage perhaps, in Deuteronomy the 8th chapter when it's dealing with this wilderness journey. He says to them, God says to them in verse 2, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee, these 40 years in the wilderness. There was a purpose in it. God doesn't merely lead by taking your hand and grabbing you. Oh no, he's leading you in another sense. He has a purpose in it. It's to humble thee. To prove thee. To know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee. And he suffered thee to hunger. He doesn't say God was very sorry to think that there was a slip up somewhere in the commissariat department and you had to go without your meals a bit. He said, no, no. I'm just as responsible for withholding as giving. Are we prepared for that, friends? He said, I suffered you to hunger, not because I wanted you to be hungry, really. I wanted to teach you. I fed you with manna, which was God's gift, and you didn't know where it came from, so that you might learn that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And you mean to tell me that that was a fine discipline for that people, but we don't need it? I think we do, friends. At least the Lord seems to think we do because most of us know we've been led roundabout ways. Most of us know there have been gaps when we wondered whether God had forgotten us. Most of us can sympathize with Asaph but what a blessed thing to have a sanctuary to go in at long last. Get it all settled there and come out and say, Lord, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire like unto thee. I've seen now. And that's a blessed I hope And then there's one other which I must give you, and that is Proverbs chapter 3, 6. Now this is well known to most of us because it incorporates the principle which is given in 2 Timothy. You remember in 2 Timothy, the Apostle wrote and said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that is the basis of all our approach to Scripture. While I'm looking at the Old Testament, I remind myself that I'm not a Jew. While the people of Israel were journeying into a land of promise, the promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I'm never going to have a foot in the land of Palestine, but I'm not worrying about it, because my calling as a Gentile has associated me with heavenly places where Christ sits. I've not lost anything. But this is a passage which illustrates the meaning of right division. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And you will get the echo of, of Hebrew poetry again here, helping you to get the meaning. Poetry in Hebrew doesn't rhyme words, it rhymes thoughts a bit deeper. So we listen. Trust in the Lord. What's that mean? Well, lean on Him. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. What does that mean? With all your understanding. So we'll say it again. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall rightly divide thy paths. That's the word that was in front of Timothy when he read his Greek Bible, the very word that Paul had used. And our English word direct, if you subdivide it, gets very near to the word rightly divide. DI. That's good enough for dividing. R-E-C-T, rect. A rectangle is right. So, right division. So, even our paths come under that principle. And that's how God leads us. Sometimes he leads us by merely this. You come to a fork in the road of life, as we so often do, and we're uncertain whether we ought to go to the left hand or to the right. Now, down the left hand, there's a very fine job going that ever so much better wages or income or salary or whatever it is stipend, I don't know what you get, I don't want to offend anybody, but it all comes to the same thing at the end. Uh, oh, that's a very attractive thing down there. And of course you have a tendency to feel that's the right place. But, but, there's a snag about it. You're very conscious that also associated with that high stipend, income, salary, wages or whatnot, you may not be able to acknowledge the Lord as you should. That's God's answer. You don't need any further leading. Don't you see? In all thy ways acknowledge him. And that of itself will many times rightly divide your path. I always like to speak about one thing that helped me tremendously in connection with this chapel. And this is to do with my own family. You know when you're bringing up your children or trying to, you know, the other way around sometimes, or sometimes they're bringing you up. My daughter's had a terrible time of it bringing up father. They are still a little bit uncertain about me, I believe now. But speaking seriously, there came a moment when we were at a parting of the ways. London was being subjected to raids. We were at war. And we were living in the country, practically right out on the country road, out of danger. Then this chapel came. We had been asking the Lord to lead us, and he led us here. Now we were at the parting in the waves. I said, it's no good me taking that chapel and me living right out here in the country. We can't work it, we can't do anything with it. And then to my joy, one of my daughters, I don't know which it was, said, but Dad, she said, there's no need to pray over it the idea. If this was the leading of the Lord here, what are you going to pray about? Because if you start praying after that, it's trying to alter God's mind or get some way of dodging it. No, they said, if that's the leading of the Lord, up we come. And we moved into London. We moved into a bombed area. We moved into it all, and sometimes I was in a bit uh, of a fix when the ceilings were falling down, the wind was going out of the back garden, and sometimes we were down underground sleeping or almost getting what the lady said, pneumonia every night and so on. But we were brought through. But that one point struck me. The outcome of the presence of the word of God in our family quietly and led them to see that if that was the leading of the Lord, there's not even any need to pray about it because there was the answer. I like to remind ourselves of that. Well now let's come to this um, Exodus 40. And see what we can with regard to the relationship between the sanctuary and this question of leading. Because you see, we've looked at the 40th chapter and verse 33 and 4. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then he goes on to speak about that cloud. Verse 36 But when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went forward, went onward in all their journeys. And if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. And you find there's one passage which says it may stay there for a day or a week or a month or a year. You couldn't tell. So sometimes one of the most agonising parts of the leading of the Lord is keep on getting up next morning and finding you're still stuck there. Because our feeling is all we want to get on. Life is passing. But so far as God is concerned, even a person who's 70, or even if he's 80, is only a child. He's got all the time there is, and we haven't. One of the biggest problems is to wait and not help God out. Go back to the history of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah. They won't mind when we meet them. They'll say, oh, you're quite right to remind people. There they were, the old couple, no prospect of having children or whatever, and last and last they said, we made a mistake, God doesn't mean that. So Ishmael was born. They helped God out, and the result was Ishmael. So you see, the leading was there, but we have to know that God has his plans, and he can't hurry them for anybody. But it says this in verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It stresses it in 13, it repeats it in 14. All their journeys never left them. Well, now you can add to that by other passages which you can collect for your own benefit. But we're going now to consider this section, which starts at verse 17. And you will notice that I've gone to the trouble, i pat myself on the back sometimes, of laboriously writing out the words, as the Lord commanded Moses. I didn't put ditto or dots. God didn't put ditto or dots, he said it over and over again. And the sheer impact upon your mind, I think, is useful. Every step that's taken is in connection with these words, as the Lord commanded Moses. It's one of those things that that will preach a sermon to us all. It's utterly useless for any one of us to say, Oh, Lord, lead me, and under our breath say, in contradiction to some known part of Scripture. That's immoral, isn't it? Of course, we never say that. To say it would be to destroy it. But we deceive ourselves. And we think that by our much asking or what not, we'll break through. No, no. As the Lord commanded Moses, God leads. If you go to Psalm 23, He leads me where? All oh, you say green fields and still waters. Ah, yes, but He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. So if you want to go the other direction, friends, well, I say go. But don't be a hypocrite and ask him about it, will you? Because the sheer fact of saying, well, I can't ask him about it, but may stop you from going. So it is, he needs, but it's in harmony with his will and it's associated with a complete sanctuary experience. That's where we're coming to now. You see, we've got now, in these alternating verses, a description of the tabernacle just crammed into these verses. First of all, verses 17 to 19, the tabernacle is erected. Then we have the ark and the mercy seat. Then the table of showbread. Then the candlestick. Then the altar of incense. Then the altar with its offering outside, the labour and the water, the court erected right round, and when that's all done, then came the cloud. You say, oh, if i have got to be in harmony with all that before I can be led, no wonder I've never been led yet. Well, it sounds formidable, doesn't it? But it's all resolved in the fact that Christ is answering all that. If Christ is that to you in reality, then the leading is infallible. So should we just take it step by step and remind ourselves of what it means for the last time in this series. The tabernacle is erected, verses 17 to 19. On the first day of that month, the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened his sockets and set up the boards thereof and put in the bars thereof and reared up his pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent above upon it. As here it comes, as the Lord commanded Moses. He put it up, he erected it. He made sure of the sockets underneath and the curtains at the top. The whole thing was complete. And don't forget the silver sockets on which it rested was made of the redemption money paid by Israel. This whole sanctuary rests upon redemption, the dwelling place of God for the redeemed people. If you are in any measure of doubt with regard to the reason why you seem to be baffled, I'm suggesting come back to this chapter. I don't say tonight. You may not be facing problems tonight, but the chances are you will before very long. And here is an opportunity to sort things out a bit. What shall we say the tabernacle as a whole stands for? (coughs) Well, I've lifted the words out from Exodus 25. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. Well, we come to our own epistle, and, and Paul has prayed that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, He says that this church, which is the body of Christ, is a dwelling place for God in spirit. So here we have the insistence that just as in the Old Testament, so in the New, in the Old calling and in the New, the very first thing that is emphasized is the essential idea that God will dwell or Christ will dwell with his people. Now it's very, very difficult to be with a very holy person and run amuck, isn't it? You, you may wish they were quite so pious, so did you could, but if you're going to have Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, then the leading will be in a path of righteousness, won't it? It won't, it won't be possible to be otherwise. So we've got the first note struck. Well now let's take a step down to verses 20 and 21. And he took and put the testimony <coughs> into the ark. That's a thought to be remembered. An empty ark would not be a support for the mercy seat. Oh no. The ark was only of value because it was going to contain the unbroken tables of stone. Christ lived up till the age of 30 before he commenced his ministry And as far as we know, he was just over 33 when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He lived. And at the beginning of his ministry, heaven opened. And a voice said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That ark was not empty. There was righteousness in his heart. Otherwise, he could never have been a saviour for me, if he needed a saviour himself so the ark is completed and the testimony is put in it. And he set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony. There it was, inside the holiest of all, covered, hidden, but there, in the presence of God, as the Lord commanded Moses. When we were looking at this one feature in the studies a few Thursday nights back, we realized that the great stress was on this word communion. There will I meet with you and commune with you. And that communion, we found, was not only a very high and glorious fellowship, but it was a very lowly and wonderful one too. But I drew your attention that the word communion is just the ordinary everyday word in the Hebrew language for speaking to somebody else. Just the ability to speak with God and hear Him speak with you. Is that a, are you strange to that, friends? Do you draw near to God as a sort of perfunctory thing? And is He a God afar of off that you have to use a lot of highfalutin words to get His ear? Or have you appreciated That passage we had in the psalm one Sunday morning. When my heart is overwhelmed, I cry. That's all. You see, a mother doesn't have to have highfalutin words from a little babe. Just a cry and she's there. That's prayer. So here we have a meeting place that God has made for his people. Now we've got no ark. And we've got no mercy seat, not made of wood and gold that we've got the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and all his finished work at the back of it. So there it is. Is there any slip-up there with regard to us? If so, well, then perhaps leading is suspended temporarily. Or should we take another step? 22 and 23. And he put in the table the tent. In the table, in the tent of the congregation, this is now outside in the holy place, not in the holiest of all upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The bread. The bread of presence. The show bread. And you remember we found that there were twelve loaves put on that table, because there were twelve tribes of Israel. So these loaves, in that presence of God, were remembered by him day and night. They were continually renewed, but they were never absent. But then there's another feature. Although the twelve loaves were there, if you had gone into that holy place with the priest, you would have seen something was on the table, but you wouldn't have seen any loaves of bread, because, we are told, they were completely covered with frankincense. Now, frankincense is something white by its meaning, and it is fragrant and used as a part of incense. Now, incense today I don't think is asked for by God in our places of worship. In fact, some of us would be very incensed if we used it. But in the days of ceremonial, it was a type of fragrance, acceptableness, the accepted worship and prayer of God's people going up in that symbolic way. Well, here we have then God's people, looked at not as they are in themselves, but looked at as they are in Christ. And so I've put that precious word that belongs to our calling, accepted. Ephesians says that we have been accepted in the Beloved. So just as Israel were there in that holy place, whatever they were carrying on outside, there they were. And when the time came for them to split, and ten tribes were taken away and deported, and only two left to Jerusalem, there's no hint that they ever said, well, now we've only put two loads on. No, no. Whether the ten were there or whether they were gone, they were still seen by God in his presence. That's good for us too, isn't it? We can never go away from God so far that we'll be forgotten by him. And we'll never go away so far that what his hand can reach us and at last lead us back. So that ought to encourage us in this connection of being led of the Lord. Now, as you come down to the candlestick, verse 24, and he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. And you notice that they had lamps in verse 25. So you need not boggle at the word candlestick. It was because in the old days of the authorised version, candles were the most u- usual form of illumination. They called anything a candlestick. Even though they invented lamps afterwards, we do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord. I think the emphasis here is on the word lighted. It's not merely that you've got a lamp, but it's a lamp that's lit. Mm-hmm. Now a, a lamp that's lit is a symbol of service. Ministry. A light that shines in a dark place. Let your light so shine holding forth the word of God. Oh, you get many passages. You see, perhaps we're not being led of the Lord because for some reason or another we haven't lit our lamps. Will you have a look at your record of service? Will you see what you're doing? Will you see what's happening to it? It may be that there's a hold up somewhere because you have failed in this direction. You see, I'm not a father inquisitor. I'm not a I don't we don't hold confessionals in this place. And so I'm only asking you to do the searching as in the presence of God. And say, Where have I slipped up? If I have slipped up, I may not have done. But if I have, have I slipped up in any of these without fully appreciating what they mean to be in Christ? Let's take another stage. Verses twenty six and twenty seven. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil, and he burnt sweet incense thereon, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now the golden incense table refers to the intercession. And although it was outside in the holy place, by the time we come to the epistle to the Hebrews, you may remember in chapter 9, Paul now doesn't speak about it being in the outside, but he says the golden censer is inside. Why has he made that change? Well, when the high priest went into the holiest of all, he took the incense off the golden table with him. That was its function. So you see, this is directing us to where Christ is. The priests failed, we are told in Hebrews 7, because they could not continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an intransmissible priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save unto the uttermost all that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And don't forget, this isn't speaking about salvation. He's speaking about people who are saved, who have been saved from the uttermost, that they can now be saved to the uttermost. That's the other end, that's the goal. He who brought you out of the horrible pit and the miry clay of which your feet upon a rock intends that you should now walk and go and have a goal in front of you and he'll be with you right through every step. This is the interceding priest at the right hand of God which is now coming into effect. What about prayer? What about our praying? Do we take into account that our prayers are, as it were, mediated for us? Down here we have an intercessor, says Romans, the 8th chapter. The Spirit interprets our meanings, although sometimes we hardly know what we're saying ourselves. And sometimes, the very finest prayer is to go into the presence of God with Romans 8 in view and say, Father, I know not what I should pray for as I ought. I mean, some people go telling God all that he ought to do. Of course, we, we can appreciate the simple-hearted uh, minister of a Scottish kirk or on one of those outside islands who said, Lord, I don't know whether you've seen the paper this morning. Because over there that was just an ordinary thing if the little packet ship didn't arrive, the papers didn't come, and nobody on the island had any news. Well, he wasn't funny. They could all appreciate that. But you see, here we have this thought that he knows. And it would be sometimes so blessed if instead of telling God where he got off and how we ought to do it, we simply said, Lord, I'd lo- rather leave the onus with thyself. Do as thou hast said, work out my purposes of grace for me, but above all things, give me grace just to follow. Oh, I believe that would please him. Knowing my own weaknesses, well, I don't know them all. That's a good thing, otherwise I might be intimidated. But I do know one. I honestly tell you that sometimes my prayer is so brief that you hardly think it was good enough. i just there for a moment I can't get to any particular issue, and I just say this, Lord, for this day, just give me the spirit of thy Son, and I leave it, because I'm going to face something. I'm going to have to decide something. I don't know whether I'm going to do, this or that, but I have a feeling that if I can only face it in the spirit of his Son, I'll have the answer. Now, another person says, well, that wouldn't satisfy me. Oh, no, that's true enough. But sometimes that's what I have to do. It isn't what we say in the presence of God. It's what our need is and how far our faith reaches out to the fact that he means what he says, that he hears our prayer, he is our Redeemer and he will lead us and he will never fail us and never forsake us. Keep those where the most in our mind. The intercession. And then we have in chapter 28 and 29 this great altar which stood out there for the burnt offering. And he set up the hanging at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle to the tent of the congregation, and offered upon it the burnt offering and meat offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, unless you are fairly intimate with the first six chapters of the the book of Leviticus, you may not fully appreciate what the altar of burnt offering and meat offering stand for? Now it's not humanly possible it wouldn't be right to attempt to cram that in the last ten minutes of a study like this. So I think there's no alternative but that we must start our next series by examining Leviticus chapters 1 to 6 to see what the altar of burnt offering stands for but otherwise We should not be able to use this as a practical means to this end. But we can see there's a stress on burnt offering. Because you know enough, I know, to know that there was also a sin offering and a trespass offering. But our sins and our trespasses are not so much in view as a wholehearted service rendered to the Lord is here. The burnt offering was one which was for acceptance. It wasn't viewing the question of atonement for sin so much as wholehearted acceptance, wholehearted service. Or as I think I've got a note at the bottom here, Romans, the twelfth chapter, to render, yield your bodies, not as dead or dying sacrifices, that's never asked of us. Christ was the only one who could do that. But you could render, you could yield your bodies as living sacrifices Holy, acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service, he says. And that, of course, is one of the ways in which this interprets that. Then we have in 30 and 32, the labour. These people who have passed the great altar of burnt offering, in their service, were continually reminded that they must be clean, that they are the vessels of the Lord. You do remember, don't you, that this labor was made of the mirrors that were taken from the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. I didn't emphasize the reason why those women were there. You can compare the same expression in the days of Eli when the priests, the sons of Eli, and some of these women were carrying on so that it brought about the death of their father eventually and a terrible time in Israel. Now every time a priest washed his hands and washed his feet before he served the Lord, there was that reminder of the temptations that are in connection with service, the temptations to go aside and yield to the desires of the flesh. And if you think that is very, very unnecessary, all I can say is that I don't think you know much about this world. You cannot pass through this world. You cannot listen to a radio. You cannot go to a cinema. You cannot read novels. You cannot read your newspaper. You cannot know the people who live in the same street with you. You cannot know some of your own intimate friends without knowing that this is, is necessary. There should be this emphasis upon the fact that if we are in connection with the service of God, there must be this clean this cleansing, and the need there is that that cleansing should be continual. So we are told that we can have fellowship even with him and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin day by day. And you will remember that our Saviour to his own disciples said to them, He that hath been bathed needeth not save to wash his feet But it's clean every whit. And so, when we had the labor before us, we found there was separate provision for the washing of the feet in connection with the service of the tabernacle. Well, that brings us to the last part in verse 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle. Now, that separated the tabernacle and all its service from the rest of the camp. Now, the whole of the camp was holy. In the book of the Revelation, when Gog and Magog let loose again, they encompassed the camp of the saints. And the camp was distributed round this tabernacle, the twelve tribes having their allotted places, each one with their standards. But they were still told, even though they were a holy people, living in what God calls a holy land, they were still reminded, that there was a great deal of difference between what they knew and called holiness and what the real thing was. There was a court that separated. And you remember, there are calls in the New Testament, come out and be separate. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. And that passage goes on in a very peculiar way to say that by so doing, they perfect holiness, now you may say though, no, that's the last thing on earth you can think about perfecting. Shakespeare speaks about the silliness of trying to paint the rose or gild the lily. But what about perfecting holiness? Well it all depends, as our old friend Joe used to say on the Brains Trust. He used to say, it all depends on what you mean by perfecting. Oh, right enough, friends. Perfecting to our ear means improving. And holiness is unimprovable. But perfecting in the New Testament means taking the thing to its logical conclusion right to the end. And so he says, you have been saved, you have been redeemed, and by redemption you've already been made a separate people. Well, if that's the case, walk like it. Live in harmony with it, and the God of peace shall be with you. And that brings you to the end of the whole construction. Then he says, so, Moses finished the work. Everything God had told him, he had done. Down to the catchets and the little hooks and the rings that held the curtains. All complete. According to the pattern showed him in the mount. Then a cloud covered the tent. Then the leading they were waiting for was given. And then it goes on to tell us. The day or night, never did it, was it taken from them. It led them sometimes to places where they had bitter water. It led them sometimes to an evening where there were 12 wells and 70 palm trees. Satan didn't always lead them in the same way and to the same spot, but it was leading them. And if they only knew it, every step of their journey was taking them nearer to home. As I have said to some of my friends, uh, Whatever you do, don't drop your H when you're singing that hymn. You know, you could hear it, a day's march nearer Rome. Well, we don't want to be a day's march nearer Rome, (coughs) but we are thankful that every step we take through this wilderness through which God is leading us, our back is on Egypt. We are facing the sun rising. We are on the way home. And someone has said, With regard to the approach of old age, milestones don't matter when you're going home. So here we've now brought our studies again. If you can call them studies, some people may not, I don't know. But my one great thought is to let this book speak to us. Come down to our level and talk to us. That's what God is doing and that's what I think he would have us do. The last words about ministry in the epistle of the Hebrews is those that have spoken unto you the word of God. So whatever else is missing in the ministry of the chapel of the open book, and I dare say so there be a good many things missing so far as I'm concerned here, I do believe one thing I can register as in the presence of God. That every meeting we take, whether I succeed or fail, It has been with an honest attempt to open the book and let it speak for itself. And I commend that to you not only for these meetings but when the Lord shall open you a door as he may do yet that you too will see to it that above all things else it shall be the open book the book speaking for itself and then the words with which we've started the finished work You know where that leads us, don't you? The finished work as the basis of all our hopes in salvation or service.